You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Bloodgroove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again the Navigator, And here I'd like to share a question that one of you sent me. Richard wrote to ask me if Commodore Thomas Warren, wrong way Warren, had perhaps commandeered, lost again the navigator. And I can't say, but if lost again you happen to be on Commodore Warren's flagship, well, good luck. Then there's Governor Roop, gin-soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When sailors in the Age of Sail talk about the Southern Ocean or the South Sea, they're talking about the Pacific Ocean. When we talk about the Pacific Adventures, William Dampier was calling them expeditions into the South Seas. But today, when we talk about the Southern Ocean, we mean a body of water that is also known as the Antarctic Ocean. That's a relatively recent discussion, relative in regard to pirates in the Age of Sail, but it took some scientific expeditions in the 18th and 19th centuries to discover that the Southern Ocean really was a separate and distinct body of water. There are a lot of reasons for this. There are things like wind patterns and oceanic zones, things like Flora and fauna, salinity, and the weather. Well, it's cold in the Antarctic. And those are the kind of nuggets of wisdom you can expect here on the Pirate History Podcast. But you know, it was. It was cold. It could get so cold that sailors would lose their senses. In 1798, Samuel Taylor Coleridge published The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. It's something of a parable for sailors traversing those icy waters. That's the poem in which a mariner early in the voyage shoots an albatross, an Antarctic bird. 
It's an innocuous enough event until bad luck begins to befall the crew. Minor misfortunes at first, but they get worse and worse, and the crew begins to realize that it was this mariner's fault for shooting this albatross. Eventually, their ship gets stuck in the ice, and Coleridge gives us the famous phrase, Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. In December 1696, the adventure galley was in those same icy waters, though happily not stuck. In a sense, though, they were even worse off than those in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. They weren't prepared for an Antarctic voyage. They hadn't intended to sail that far south. Their biggest problem, aside from the cold, I guess, but it was that no one on board was familiar with those seas. They didn't know anything about the winds or the tides or the navigation. The detour that Captain William Kidd took in order to evade Commodore Thomas Warren's press gang extended his voyage by a full six weeks. That's about a month and a half in the freezing cold, without proper winter clothing and with ever-dwindling supplies of water and food. Beyond that, the region is known for its dangerous winds, occasionally still and occasionally violent. The men were forced to row when they lost the wind and to pump water from the hold when they were thrashed by storms. It was a tough voyage. Now, in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, eventually almost everybody on board dies. There's a scene in which Death and the Grim Reaper are gambling over souls on an abandoned ghost ship. The only sailor left by that point is the ancient mariner himself, wearing the corpse of the albatross around his neck as a sign of his repentance for shooting the poor bird. When this repentance is accepted, the corpses of his former crewmen are reanimated to sail him back to England. Upon arrival in English waters just off the coast, the ship is sucked below the water by a whirlpool, leaving the mariner alone and floating. A father and son in a rowboat see this man floating all alone and row out to save him, but when they arrive they believe him to be dead. However, once they pull him in the boat, after a few minutes, this corpse draws breath and begins to talk. The father freaks out and gets knocked unconscious, so the mariner has to take up the oars himself to get back to shore, at which point the son, who is scared out of his wits, believing this talking corpse to be a figure of evil, exclaims, The devil knows how to row! When the adventure galley emerged from the Antarctic from a difficult and harrowing voyage into the southern ocean, they had endured something terrible, and the crew, now back in the world of the living, had fundamentally changed. This is episode 245, The Devil Knows How to Row. I've been listening to a lot of stuff lately about the Enlightenment and the Age of Revolutions. It's a fascinating period for me, all about the birth of the modern world. You know, you get the beginnings of capitalism and then Adam Smith, but you even get, you know, the proto-communists like Gracchus Babouf in France. And a lot of historians will point to Gracchus Babouf and his movement in the French Revolution as the birth of communism. 
tracing a line from Babouf right to Karl Marx, and, you know, they're probably right. But some version of the ideals of communism could be traced back to, well, Jesus, maybe. Or maybe even older than that. You see all throughout history instances of utopian communal movements. All throughout the history of the Christian world, you see these utopian Christian sects popping up. They were almost universally considered heretics and killed. But the pirates of the Age of Sail, the world of the pirates, had distinct, to use a phrase that wouldn't be invented for another couple of centuries, had communist overtones. And, you know, they did own their ships in commune. They did share out all of their plunder equally among everyone. They had injury pay and life insurance. And, sure, under a certain light, it does have that flavor. But all of it was blown way out of proportion in the minds of the journalists on land. By about this point in our story, in December 1696, they were doing a raging business, painting pictures of a pirate utopia on Madagascar that included all of their money held in common, no private property, free love, which, actually, considering Malagasy customs, that one's probably true, but especially damning for the pirates were things like the equal rights for women and people of color. Now, none of this was true. Money was not held in common. Private property was a thing. Even the free love the pirates were screwing up because they got all possessive and weird and started shooting and stabbing each other over women. That was not what these pirates were all about. Now, most of this has to do with the sudden relaxation of press censorship in England, thanks to William III. You've got this Dutchman, William III, that shows up and says you can start publishing things that you were not allowed to under the Stuarts. And the journalists say, really? But, you know, they don't quite trust it. Maybe it's just a ruse to get them to publish the really dangerous stuff, the subversive stuff that will get them arrested. So instead of publishing articles about how, hey, everybody, maybe we should own all our property in common and put all our money in one big communal pot and work together, wouldn't that be great? No. They start saying that's what the pirates are doing, right? And aren't the pirates so bad for doing it, right? Wink, wink. But this was the prevalent idea. Libertalia, though the word did not yet exist, was the prevalent idea about what Madagascar was. Now, I can't tell you what William Kidd or any of the other men on board the Adventure Galley may have expected when they reached Madagascar. We could assume that at least some of them, maybe most, but at least some, were expecting the utopia that the media was painting for them. But when the pirates arrived at, well, no, not yet pirates, when the pirate-hunting privateers arrived at St. Augustine Bay on the 28th of January, 1697, they would have been disappointed. I imagine that some of them pictured a harbor full of ships. There were beach villas and lounge chairs and a fully stocked bar with rum and wine and punch, there were beautiful women fanning the men with banana leaves and pirates in, I don't know, crowns and jewels with scepters and rings on every finger. Maybe not that, but whatever they pictured, it was not this. First of all, there weren't any ships floating in the harbor. At least, 
That's what we've been told. There were a couple of ships sinking in the harbor, including the old signet. Instead of villas and a fort, that some imagined, there were a few ramshackle lean-tos and tents, housing, at most at this point, maybe a couple of dozen out-of-work shipless pirates. But for the men of the adventure galley, I bet they were thankful that there weren't any pirates around who may have been hazardous to them at this point. Were that the case, the crew of Adventure Galley were sick, they were weak, they had many of them scurvy after their extended voyage into the Antarctic. Dangerous, hostile pirates might have been the end of them. Instead, the Adventure Galley put in a little bit down the coast, a fair distance from the men who were there. Benjamin Franks, that New York jeweler, was one of the men who was quite ill and among the first to go ashore. The doctor went ashore with them to make sure that the ill were seen to. And he knew exactly what to do here. Every person with any kind of seafaring experience knew that oranges and lemons cured scurvy. The government knew it too, but they wouldn't acknowledge it officially for about another 70 years because, you know, it's really expensive to stock up on fruit. And it didn't need to be citrus. Any tart fruit or even a leafy green would do, and they found plenty of options on Madagascar once they landed. And I say found, but it was brought to them. The local Malagasy brought down heaps of fruit and water and beef to the beach. The fruit and water was free, a gift for dehydrated, scurvy-ridden sailors, the beef and their breads and other foodstuffs were not. The Malagasy were here to trade. And they did. The Englishmen traded tools and money, mostly. But over the following weeks, most of the sailors were more interested in trading away their combs and beads, and reportedly, in one instance, a single nail. These were the kind of trinkets and baubles that the European sailors traded for the attentions of local women, but apparently this wasn't transactionary to the Malagasy. They weren't paying for sex. They were giving the women gifts as a sign of interest, and the women might or might not choose to sleep with the gift giver. But they usually chose to. A sex anthropologist from the 1890s wrote, quote, In this region, all the women vie for the honor of temporary marriage with sailors, as is still the case when a European ship anchors here today. I love that temporary marriage, right? Once the surgeon from the adventure galley, a Dr. Brandenham, saw all the sick were well enough to get back to work, Kidd sailed the crew to a nearby harbor called Tulir Harbor. It was a good spot to hide the adventure galley, a good spot to lie in ambush for any pirates or French who might pass by. They stayed at Tulir Harbor for two weeks. It gave the carpenter on board time to make some much-needed repairs. The, the adventure galley was in poor shape, really poor shape. Now, she had been custom-built in London just like the fancy had been, but not to anywhere near the same standards. The adventure galley had been built for this expedition by Captain Kidd's investors who were one and all penny-pinching scoundrels who were in this game exclusively to squeeze as much money as possible. 
so unlike the Charles II, for which no expense was spared, they built adventure galley on the cheap. Most ships of any reasonable quality had at least a two-layered hull. That's two layers of thick wood for the hull of the ship. And many, maybe even most by this point, had some metal planking on the outside. That's to protect, not really from cannonballs at this point, we're not talking iron sides, but to protect from regular wear and tear, from things like barnacles, and most importantly, from worms. And we're not talking about, you know, top-of-the-line heated seats in a Ferrari here. These precautions were seat belts in a Ford. And Adventure Galley was built with one layer of cheap wood for the hull, and no metal to be seen. The hull, when they finally took a good look, was filled with worms. The crew had to work around the clock pumping the hold by this point. Now, the carpenter was able to patch some of the holes, but there was a lot of damage. Kid and the carpenter and some of the officers realized how extensive this damage was. They suggested the crew take the time to careen the vessel, but the men weren't having it. They were hungry for a prize. So they waited. The adventure galley sat at anchor, while the crew scanned the horizon for any sign of incoming ships. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. After two weeks at dawn, the lookout spotted a sail on the horizon, headed straight for Tulir Harbor and the Adventure Galley. It wasn't a big ship, just the right size, though, for a pirate ship. But when it got close enough, the pirate hunters realized that this was not a pirate ship. At least, that's what they tell us. They tell us that it was a tiny merchantman of merely four guns called the Loyal Russell. The loyal Russell pulled up alongside Adventure Galley and hailed her. As it turned out, their captain was sick, so Captain Kidd had him brought over. For the next several days, Dr. Brandenham treated this captain. He wasn't doing well, but he thought he might pull through. In the meantime, though, the crew of the loyal Russell realized that they were standing right next to Gasp, the Adventure Galley. They'd heard all about this infamous pirate ship and their... Notorious, dangerous, monstrous pirate captain, William Kidd. Some of their crew wanted to set sail right there to escape. But 
they were caring for the captain, and, you know, these pirates didn't really seem so bad. So instead of fleeing, they fraternized, and it was here that Captain Kidd learned exactly what Commodore Warren was saying about him, that he was a gasp monstrous pirate. It was distressing for Captain Kidd. You know, he had this whole inflated idea of his importance, his standing in England even, he had a letter from the king in his pocket. What kind of oaf would spread these scurrilous lies about such an honest man? This news, and the fact that it was being spread and believed so widely, probably would have pricked the bubble of his ego a bit. But Kidd was nothing if not a man of ego. He wasn't going to let this go easily. In the end... The captain of the Loyal Russell died, despite Dr. Brandenham's best efforts. And the adventure galley tells us, and they might even be telling the truth, that they moved on. There were arguments about command on board the Loyal Russell, and they didn't want to get roped into it. So Captain Kidd took the ship north to the Comoros Islands, and here I've actually got a correction to make from a number of episodes back. When Henry Every was patrolling these same waters, looking for other pirate ships to join his fleet, I told you that he sailed to Johanna, and I told you at the time that that was in South Africa, but that was incorrect. In this instance, Johanna is in no way connected to Johannesburg or South Africa. It's an island in the Comoros Islands, to the northwest of Madagascar. So that's a whole leg of Henry Every's journey that I... Well, got wrong, but it was the same island to which William Kidd took the adventure galley, and it was an island where everybody in the region had to stop. It had wood and water and food, and most importantly, there were no Ethiopians or Arabs or French or even Malagasy. There was nobody living there, so it was safe. The only danger to be found were the pirates who occasionally waited in ambush, but William Kidd turned the tables. He went there to wait in ambush for pirates. Almost as soon as Johanna was in view, however, a terrible storm smashed into the ship. The crew furled their sails. They tied down all the cargo. They battened the hatches and raised the anchor. They sent men down to work the pumps, and then they set in to wait. Over the following few days, the storm battered the adventure galley, the men were working round the clock, but lines snapped nonetheless. Men were dragged overboard or injured, and the quick repairs the carpenter and his men had just completed were torn away from the already weakened hull. Adventure Galley was in real danger here. But eventually, near the end of February 1697, the storm broke. The following morning, the crew, all of them exhausted and battered, Spotted sails. At this moment, they would have held a council. Do they attack? I don't suspect there was a lot of deliberation here. To borrow a phrase from Henry Every, the crew of the Adventure Galley were hungry, stout, and resolute. But even after they voted to attack, the attack itself still wasn't exactly a sure thing. Remember, they could only attack if she was a pirate ship or a French ship. They were not pirates. I imagine Captain Kidd had to remind them of that fact. Still, the adventure opened up full sail and set a heading for this ship. But then, 
things took an unexpected turn. Instead of sailing away from the adventure galley, a ship that was bearing down hard, which any ship should have done, this unfamiliar vessel instead turned toward her. This was unexpected. And the crew must have been apprehensive about this move. You know, maybe that was Commodore Warren, or maybe a French man-of-war, or maybe a pirate that was not afraid of them. As it turns out, this was a ship that we've met before. The Scarborough. That private merchantman that had been in Cape Town when Commodore Warren arrived. A ship of about twenty guns and one hundred men. The captain, a man named Brown, believed that the adventure galley was one of the East India Company escorts he had been sailing with before the storm hit. That's why he sailed right toward her. That fleet had been separated in the storm, but Captain Brown thought that he had found someone. Once he got close enough to make her out, though, Captain Brown realized his mistake. Maybe Brown thought that it was a pirate ship, or maybe he just recognized the description of the adventure galley and, well, still thought she was a pirate. Either way, though, he tacked hard and the Scarborough headed away. This was more like it. She was running, so Captain Kidd's men pursued. What no one on Adventure Galley knew, reportedly, but what Captain Brown had just seen from his spyglass, was another ship coming up behind Captain Kidd. It was the Loyal Russell, that ship we just met back at Madagascar of four guns. According to the story we've been told, this ship was a non-entity, just headed to Johanna as well. I suppose, but to Captain Brown, from his vantage point, this would have looked very much like two suspicious vessels headed right for him. Have you ever seen one of those plays that are a comedy of doors, they're sometimes called? They're usually set in a parlor somewhere in Victorian England with a bunch of doors in the set, and there's always some drama behind the scenes. You know, the wife is cheating on her husband, the husband cheating with the maid, and then there's a priest and somebody's father involved. The characters keep trying to sneak away to have a romantic tryst, but they keep getting interrupted because of all these doors, and in the end, the husband and wife accidentally wind up behind one of those doors, both of them thinking they are with their lovers when it turns out they were with their spouse all along, so... They fall back in love and the play is over. They're not usually very good plays. But in this comedy of errors, playing out here off the Comoros in early March 1697, another player was about to walk through the door. The Sydney, a 40-gun, 130-man East India Company man-o'-war, arrived on the scene. She was a ship that could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the adventure galley, no problem. With the addition of the Scarborough, who had recently been separated from her fleet, well, Adventure Galley was outgunned completely. Now, I don't know if Captain Kidd even considered changing course, but once he saw this ship, the thought must have entered his mind. Before long, though, the choice was taken from him. The Sydney raised her standard, an East India Company flag that carried the cross of St. George. It was a clear sign that Sydney was English and that she was the big dog here. Deference was expected. 
Captain Kidd, though, chose not to show his due deference. Instead of furling the topsails and coming up slowly, a sign of respect and a salute, Kidd instead raised his own flag, the king's jack, and kept on at speed. This was seen as, and honestly it was, an aggressive move. But Kidd viewed himself as an agent of the crown. He saw that flag as evidence that his mission and his authority direct from King William, remember, outweighed anything that a private company might have. And to be fair, he might even have an argument to make here, but they were in the Indian Ocean. So Captain Gifford of the Sydney, an East India Company captain, well, he disagreed. Captain Gifford fired a shot across the bow of the adventure galley, warning Kidd to furl his sails, to slow his ship, and to salute and Kidd did two of these. He furled his sails in salute and slowed the ship down. But the king's jack, his sign of authority, that continued to ride high in defiance of the Sydney. Kidd sent a boat over to the Sydney with a messenger, quote, who told us his ship was called the Adventure Galley, Captain Kidd Commander, having a commission to take all pirates and rovers in these seas. End quote. Captain Gifford was not amused, but he stayed his hand and did not attack. The following day, all four ships, the Sydney, the Scarborough, Adventure Galley, and the Loyal Russell, all sailed back to Johanna together. Once they were at anchor in the harbor there, their disagreement over the pennants, their standards, that disagreement continued. Gifford demanding that Kidd lower the King's Jack, while Kidd demanded that Gifford lower the East India Company flag. Neither was going to back down. This dispute was quickly turning into a tense standoff. But then, two more doors opened up in that comedy of errors, and in walked the priest and the father. Two more EIC ships arrived, both from that same convoy, and both of them ships that we've met already. They had formerly been a part of Commodore Warren's convoy, one of them commanded by a Captain John Clark. He's the same man who watched Captain Kidd get very drunk and then questioned the honesty of his designs. So completely outgunned, Captain Kidd decided it was a good time to lower the king's jack. Still, Captain Clark told Captain Gifford all about this scallywag, all about his presumably piratical pretensions. It wasn't good news for Captain Kidd. Still, though, he went so far as to invite all the captains to his cabin for a meal to show his true colors, as it were. But those captains refused, and in the letter they sent they questioned his honesty and his intentions again. And then, a few odd things began to happen. Imagine this. Imagine that you are a captain in the East India Company, and there's another man, another captain, who had, in a drunken rage, declared his piratical intentions to you personally, which is what Captain Kidd allegedly did with Captain Clark. And you had that man in your clutches. He was surrounded by East India Company ships. He was completely outgunned. Do you, in that situation, let him leave? 
a commodore in the Royal Navy, a commodore who had been your commander a few days prior, had told you that this man was a suspected pirate, would you let him sail away? I mean, of course not. You'd aim your guns, you'd board his ship, you'd arrest him, and you'd carry them all back to India or London or wherever they could be tried and hanged. So why? When Captain Kidd informed Captain Clark that he was going to leave, that he was going to set sail, why did Clark just let him go? That's what happened. No muss, no fuss, no fight. He just sailed away. I can't see any good reason for it except for maybe one. That Captain Clark and Commodore Warren and all the rest of these august gentlemen, that they were lying. After the fact, they were deliberately and in concert telling a falsehood. I think that, at this point in our story, Captain Kidd was far less of a pariah than what we've been told makes him out to be. Take this piece of evidence. Captain Clark would later tell some Royal Navy investigators that Captain Kidd fired at the Sydney. That he took a shot at her. This evidence was held against Captain Kidd, but there is no mention of the adventure galley firing at the Sydney in the captain's log. That's the kind of thing that you jot down. When a, an English ship fires at you, you make mention of it. To me, that smells fishy. I suspect that Captain Clark was also lying when he told those same investigators later on that at this meeting, here off Johanna, some of Kidd's crew bragged to him personally about their plan to commit acts of piracy against anyone, even, according to Captain Clark, East India Company ships. And I suspect that Captain Clark was lying because, I mean, who would do that? I don't care how brash and bold you are. Say you're planning to rob a group of heavily armed cops. Why would you tell those cops that you were planning to rob them? You don't. But that's what Clark said happened. All of this is hard to believe. But there's another oddity. When the Adventure Galley left Johanna on the 4th of April, 1697, the Loyal Russell, that little merchant ship of four guns, accompanied them. The ship that had followed the Adventure Galley for some reason from Madagascar to the Comoros Islands. And again, why? Why would you leave the safety of an East India Company escort in favor of a leaky galley full of pirates? I think it's because the loyal Russell was herself a pirate. And think about it. The loyal Russell met the adventure galley at Madagascar in the Bay of St. Augustine, the place that all the world knew was a pirate utopia, and this small ship just happened to be there to meet the adventure galley. And Captain Kidd told us that, well, he tried to leave her behind, but when another ship happens to see them, the loyal Russell is following the adventure galley. I think that this loyal Russell was a pirate ship that the men of the Adventure Galley picked up at Libertalia. It's even possible that she's one of the smaller ships that sailed with Henry Every a couple of years prior. 
But I don't think necessarily that Captain Kidd was lying about this. I think, and I think the evidence will support, that Captain Kidd probably did not realize it was a pirate crew. But some of his men, some of those scallywags he'd picked up in New York, I think they did. Next time, the crew is going to careen the adventure galley, and it's going to turn tense. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make this possible, so thank you. This show is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. To check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, go to airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight